Welcome to a special episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast. We are NAS Began's official podcast. My name is Peter, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen. Hello. So today, you guys are in for a treat. This is different because we're really talking about the history of our society and also pediatric gastroenterology in general. Like, what better time than right before our upcoming 50th anniversary annual meeting in Orlando? The Naspigan website is going to have a timeline. So Naspigan asked us to interview past presidents Mm -hmm. and ask them the same questions to really get a chronologic timeline of what Naspigan has been through. And this episode, we're highlighting some of our favorite moments. Yes, because there's so much in there that was like ridiculous and awesome. Yeah. And like we don't we wanted to bring it to the people just in case you don't have time to look through the timeline and, and listen to everything, which you should but in case you don't have time. Yeah. And we kind of uh, got a list of all the past presidents, got their emails and just contacted them and said, Hey, we want to talk to you. (laughs) Um, Some of them were like, what is zoom? But (laughs) it worked out. Well, people were on vacation time also. Yeah. I think retirement time. (laughs) Retirement time. But no, it was awesome. I think that's why we did this episode. Cause I think after we talked to them, listened to the stories, we were so excited that we had to do this. Yeah, for sure. And so I think we need to give a special tribute. we do have to do that. So when Peter and I went to Cincinnati to interview Jim Hybee. This was, I think, in 2020, like right before COVID began. It was such a special experience, although it was very noisy in that room. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, the room that he had chosen had a really loud air conditioner, but... Thank God for audio editing. I know, right? Um, But he talked about how important it is to think about the history and remember it. And really, this is our way of giving back and helping with that. And so um, thank you, Dr. Hybe, for coming up with this idea. So this was a project that, honestly, he had started. He was like thinking about you know, years ago for this 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we cannot end this episode without recognizing all the love and dedication to the society that he had that drove him to ask us to do this. Yeah. In that so. tiny room that was very loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we know what Naspigan is like now, right? Yes. But I can't even imagine what it was like in the beginning. Right. Hearing Bill Ballesteri really tell us about how in the beginning, it was really just a couple people in a room, like sitting That's there. crazy. And we didn't even have their own meeting. Like they would just tack on to ASLD or any of those Mm -hmm. other ones. But Bill Ballesteri tells us about what it was like in the beginning. I was president, I think, in the 80s. And, you know, to say that it was an ASP again, it was a very loose organization back then. We would meet in conjunction with other meetings, typically the PAS, uh, you know, APSSPR meeting. And it really, it started as the cut club in which we would get together. As I mentioned, at the PAS, we'd have a nighttime symposium. They said, and, and uh, Bill can take care of it. Oh, I don't think I was elected president. I was more, you know, uh, sort of fingered as uh, the president. You know, you're going to do it. And in fact, it extended to, this was the first two-year presidency. They said, okay, uh, we'll give you two years to uh, sort of put this together, see how you want to do it. And we certainly tried to develop a little bit of a a more firm uh, structure. And over time, it had to become more official. And so 
Dr. Larry Gardner, who's almost 90 years old, which is so cool, he talks about how they wrote the Constitution. (laughs) The Constitution guidelines. How they they wrote the Constitution on an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that it was like, I mean, on a flight, I usually just watch TV and sleep. Yeah, but they didn't have TV back then. Oh. Probably. (laughs) Or they did have TV, but not on airplanes. Let's listen to Dr. Gardner. It was, I can't remember what year, uh, but it was a year or so before uh, our first official meeting. It might have been two years. I was on an airplane with Murray Davidson and Merv Silverberg uh, returning, I think, from California, where we had all been at a meeting. I assume it was, we all sat in a row, the three of us with Murray Davidson sat in the middle. And I think I was sitting in the window seat and Merv must have been in the aisle seat. Murray had been encouraging us to organize or to get an organization of pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists. Uh, I do have to make it clear, I am not a gastroenterologist. I did pediatric hepatology for a number of years, but I never did any other aspect, uh, even though I think I was actually listed as the chief of gastroenterology at Einstein, but that's not quite true. And so Murray was urging us to get started and, and get an organization going. There we were for probably uh, four hours or more, maybe five hours together. And I had a uh, line pad and pen, and uh, I can't remember whether anyone else took notes, but I know that we talked about what the name of the organization was going to be, and uh, we had some idea of what a constitution ought to contain. And so we started writing, and the uh, name of the organization, the North American Society, reflected the fact that MERV was Canadian and intended it to be uh, North American. And when I got back, I made some attempt to make something that looked like a constitution and sent it to Murray and to Merv. And so basically that, that was the beginning of that began uh, in an official way. But it was really, it was Murray who was urging us to do this um, he was a wonderful teacher and a good friend. And, and so that's how it begins. I feel like one of the interviews that, um, you know, no offense to other presidents that I love the most was Dr. Bill Klish. He has some, a few amazing stories that we'll include, but one of them was about how they advocated for pediatric GI to become an actual field. Yeah. It used to be a dog gastroenterologist. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. also, you know, interestingly, when he was he talked about a meeting where like all the pediatric chiefs were talking about, should GI be a field? And the decision was no. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So he talks about that. And then he also talks about how he became the first board certified pediatric gastroenterologist in history. That's crazy. I think it was before I was president. Maybe it was when I was president elect or something. The chairman of pediatrics got together and discussed pediatric gastroenterology. And it was decided by the, that chairman group 
that pediatric gastroenterology should be totally a academic specialty. Wow. Um, I didn't agree with that. You know, they said there weren't any jobs available. Oh, they were just looking at it from their perspective. Yeah. And, and I didn't agree with them at all. So I, I had to, we got into this big debate in front of the entire society and uh, talked about this issue. Wow. And obviously, I was correct. You were victorious. Practice of the field had expanded dramatically. And wow. And I, I think I read online that you were the first board-certified pediatric gastroenterologist. Yeah, my certificate <laughs> reads number one. Wow, <laughs> I love incredible. it. Incredible. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, what, that's one of the few things that I'm really proud of. Is, <laughs> uh, the way that came about was that I think I was president-elect or just about president-elect, and I was asked by the board of, of the Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology to approach the Academy of Pediatrics with the idea that we would create boards for a sub-board for pediatric GI. The, the reason for that is, at the time, internists were poaching all our patients. Hmm. Hospitals didn't recognize us as being a bonafide specialty, so they would allow internists in to take care of these pediatric patients. It made me matter in hell because yeah. you know, they would poach the teenagers, but they had no idea what to do with younger children sure. because they have pediatric backgrounds. So anyway, to make a long story short, I uh, approached the, the, uh, the academy. I approached the American Board of Subspecialties. Oh, okay. And even had to talk to the American Board of Surgery and the ABIM, American Board of Internal Medicine, because yeah, there's a lot of politics in, in boards, <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> which I never realized before all that. And we finally got it going. You know, wow. we, uh, yeah, it, uh, it was approved by everybody, and I and Bill Ballesteri and his, there were several others that were on the original subboard mm-hmm. had to write all these questions, and that was, oh, wow. God, that was awful. <laughs> Can you imagine writing thousands of questions oh my for the test? And then they would review them and throw out most of them because <laughs> we weren't very good at writing questions. <laughs> Because there is an art, I, I found out. Right. So anyway, we got uh, boarded by uh, by actually taking the internal medicine. Oh, wow. Because we had written the questions right. and we couldn't uh, obviously take that test. They took out most of the cancer questions. But oh, everything sure. else was there. For, and it was kind of an interesting test. I I have no idea how I did because they never gave us a score. Yeah, they just, just passed us take the test. Or they never told us the score. I'm sure they corrected it. Wow. At some point. But that's how I ended up with number one. Number one. In addition to Dr. Klish, one of the other interviews where we talked a lot about the early days with, was with uh, Dr. Dick Grand. So he really talks about training with the adult GIs. So let's listen in. There has been a feeling that... It- all started in New York uh, with Murray Davidson. And in fact, in that area of the world, it did. But pediatric gastroenterology in Europe and also the United States really grew out of centers developed for cystic fibrosis. 
And I think if it hadn't been for the gastrointestinal impact of pancreatic and liver disease in childhood, our field may have been seriously delayed. So a number of us uh, trained with some of the giants in the field, besides Murray Davidson, Paul DeSantis, Harry Schwachman, Julio Barbaro, Claude Roy, Dick Hamilton in Toronto, and uh, Claude Roy later moving from Denver to uh, Montreal. So this was a, a very interesting time. We were all growing up together. It was interesting that it sprang up in so many places almost contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. But the need was, was great. When I came to Children's uh, in 1963 as a second-year pediatric resident, the care of children with gastrointestinal disease was quite diffuse. The surgeons took care of the patients who needed operations, so usually congenital abnormalities of the GI tract. Uh, Harry Schwachman took care of the children with celiac disease, any inflammatory bowel disease that needed more inflammatory suppression, uh, and large doses of steroids were seen by the endocrinologists. Some of the patients with Crohn's disease, particularly those who needed surgery, were followed in the surgical clinic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it was quite helter-skelter. I wasn't interested in GI in those days, but I had been at Bellevue where there was gastroenterology in adult medicine, and I wondered about that as a field. So when, and of course, I met Harry Schwachman. Then I went to the NIH. And I worked in Paul DeSantis' group. Now, what happened when I came back from NIH in 1966, at Children's, nothing had changed. Hmm. The same situation was in operation that I have just described. Harry Schwachman was trying very hard to move ahead with um, a GI program, but was absolutely swamped in... Uh, in patients with cystic fibrosis. Toward the middle of my senior residency in 66, the chairman of pediatrics, who was Dr. Charles Janeway, an immunologist, was asking the senior residents what they were going to do with their careers. Hmm. And at that time, I was committed to a basic science program at MIT. And I told him that when I finished at MIT, I'd like to come back and join the academic a gastroenterology service at Children's under Dr. Schwachman. And he said, no, if you want to be a gastroenterologist, you have to become one. And uh, so off I went after my residency, first to do my fellowship in research at uh, MIT, and then to do my clinical training in adult medicine at the MGH. When I came back to Children's, Harry Schwachman was delighted to send me patients to get them off his neck, <laughs> particularly inflammatory bowel disease. He went through his files and gave me every single patient. Oh, really? So in our interview with the late Dr. Jim Hybe, he talks a little bit more about the old days of pediatric GI, including how when an attending asked him to do some research about a patient and meant spending hours and hours and hours in the library, um, thank God for the internet. But that experience also led to a lifelong accomplished career in research, 
Um, so let's listen to him explain. Well, you have to understand my history was I did my residency training in Indiana. Uh-huh. Back in the day, there were very few training programs in pediatric GI. Um, I came here, interviewed in the cafeteria uh, with the two GI docs who are here, and they decided I would be okay. <laughs> and I had planned to simply do clinical gastroenterology and go back and practice clinical gastroenterology. I did my fellowship from 1975 to 79. I was a slow learner, so I had to take an extra year doing research. What got me going was, quite frankly, being challenged by a faculty who said, you figure out what's wrong with this patient. Yeah. And that sort of stimulated me to uh, think pretty deeply, spend a lot of time in the library, and which doesn't, you know, people don't do anymore. They simply go to the internet. But back in the day, everything was in print. And, you know, looking for articles was really a challenge. There was no PubMed. Uh, That was the day where they had these volumes that you go, called Citation Index, that you go through and look up uh, key words and find articles. And then you go Xerox them, and then you fill your file cabinets full of files. Anyway, the the essence of this was, this was a very research-intensive environment. Uh, And so it was an environment that was really conducive. And quite frankly, um, my interest really was spurred by a single patient, believe it or not. And then we got interested in other aspects of bile acid metabolism because of that. So, you know, we can't do pediatric GI without endoscopy. Mm-hmm. And I really, really like Dr. Ballesteri talking about some of the early days of endoscopy and using an eye hole doing a colonoscopy. <sighs> Gross. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen in. Pretty sure they were not wearing like face masks, you know? <laughs> okay, but yes. In terms of procedures, uh, we obviously weren't doing a significant number of endoscopies. We would biopsy the small intestine with something called the Crosby Kugler capsule. When's the last time you used that? Never. Never. Right. <laughs> Thank God. We did do liver biopsies. In fact, liver biopsy technique was developed here in Cincinnati, and that helped us to develop the field of uh, hepatology. So, what about colonoscopies? We used a rigid colonoscope. You know, a little window, a little porthole that opened at the bottom, and if you were unlucky, you would. It would be part of the cleanup, literally uh, part of the cleanup. Um, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. And then, you know, Dr. Kathy Schwartz, she also talks a little bit about endoscopy, but also having a proctoscopy table. How's that different than a normal table? I have no idea, but let's mm. listen to a fun story about <laughs> that. Her exciting new proct- proctoscopy table. <laughs> I am the mother of two boys. The oldest just had his 50th birthday. The youngest is 47, but they were little at that point. And I was a Cub Scout mother and a doctor. And I had a new proctoscopy table. So I volunteered to take the Cub Scouts on a tour of the hospital. And the two parts of the hospital that were by far the most exciting was the trip to the roof to see the transport helicopter. But number one was taking a ride on my new proctoscopy table. (laughs) That made me very popular for a day. Well, 
I think one of the cool things as it's gotten bigger is how Margaret has played such an important part. And honestly, you know, to this day, I'm not sure if I actually have met Margaret in person. What? I think we've emailed about a million times. Uh, Oh, that's crazy. So Margaret, can we please get coffee or just hang out at NASP again this year? (laughs) Um, She's kind of like the glue that holds the whole society together, like a whole field together. Yeah. I mean, how lucky Um, is NASP again to have her? Yeah. And it's interesting because when we talked to Dr. Harlan Winter, he gives us the background on Margaret's origin story. Dun, dun, dun. All right, let's hear him tell it. Nasbegan had a contract with a company called Slack. And, and Slack was a company that did meetings. They, they, they organized meetings. They organized DDW. They organized, I think, AASLD. They organized Nasbegan. It was a big company. And when the AGA decided to go in-house, and, and have their own meeting people that they hired themselves, they cut their contract with Slack. And so Margaret worked for Slack, and she was the person that organized our meeting. Um, she also worked on DEW, but she organized NASP again. When the AGA cut their contract with Slack, Slack decided to go out of that business. They decided to camp to not to do any more meeting management. And this was probably in this is probably in 1998, uh, 99, right before the World Congress. Um, and so Margaret had been working for Slack, or doing all the organization from the World Congress with me. They were doing all the, all the stuff. And then when the contract ended, Slack was no longer going to be doing it. And Margaret had a no-compete contract. So we couldn't hire Margaret. Oh. Slack had a no-compete contract, but she couldn't work for any of, her, of Slack's clients. So. I, I, you know, met with Peter Slack and I, you know, and, and anyway, long story short is we were able to convince him to let Margaret out of that no compete contract. And then we hired her at NASP again to do the, uh, the meeting manager. But we didn't have a, we didn't have, it was Margaret and Jan Sharkey also worked for Slack and helped Margaret. So it was Margaret, Jan Sharkey and I who organized that whole meeting. We did, we did all the fundraising. We did all the negotiating the contracts with the, uh, the industry, um, all that stuff that we didn't have a, an office. So it was, it was quite a, it was quite an undertaking. And then Margaret became executive director and then, you know, and then it, and then it sort of went from there, but that's the history of that, how that happened. All right. So yes. So Margaret, she's now part of NASP again. And uh, one of the coolest stories that I liked about kind of how Margaret is more than just someone who works for NASP again, um, Dr. B. Lee talks about something kind of special she did for him. Oh. It's, it's really nice. It's pretty good. Let's yeah. hear it. All right. Dr. Lee. I actually thought about this a lot and wanted to tell a story about Margaret Stallings. Excellent. Margaret, as every president and many others know, is the backbone the protector, the institutional memory, and the super glue that has enabled NASP again to become the strongest and most robust pediatric subspecialist in society. So uh, this was at one of our annual January NASP again executive retreats in Fort Lauderdale. And um, I just remember I appointed an educational consultant from Harvard to share her cutting edge educational strategies and Rob Squires to enlighten us on how differing reimbursement structures would affect our 
astroenterology practice and workforce, but it also happened to be Chinese New Year's. Hmm. And at the concluding Saturday dinner, I walked in and saw Chinese red lanterns everywhere and a full Chinese buffet at this <laughs> uh, hotel in Port uh, Lauderdale. And behind the scenes of the notes, me, Margaret had cajoled the head chef to cook Chinese, the first wow. time he had ever attempted to. <laughs> and it was good. That's incredible. Few times I turned completely red from surprise and bore <laughs> during my tenure. And Margaret, you know, in the themes of diversity, special touches, she does it all. She is a very, very special uh, person um, for me and for Nesquim. So sweet. Isn't that such a nice story? That's such a nice story. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'd be down with the Chinese buffet at yeah. one of our meetings as well. I mean, I'd be down know. with that for lunch today. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, you know, this is kind of cool because I have only been to Texas once. Have you uh -huh. been a lot? I've been to, yeah, I've been to Houston and Dallas and. But rodeos are huge. Not been a rodeo. And I have, I uh -huh. can't even imagine a rodeo associated with Naspigan. Oh yeah. So Dr. Klish, you know, like I said, you know, heavy hitter with the stories. He talks about a conference he organized. It was a precursor to the now World Congress, um, but it was Naspigan and Espigan at that time. He organized it in Texas and uh, the opening ceremony was a rodeo. Oh. Not only was it a rodeo, but, um, oh, I can't. I'll let him tell the story. Okay. Let's oh, it's awesome. Matter of fact, uh, I put together a joint meeting, which isn't recognized as a uh, formal uh, uh, World Congress, mm -hmm. or was, wasn't at the time, in Texas while I was president. It was the, one of the funnest things I've ever done because we did such things as put on a rodeo. This was oh, in Houston. Wow. And we had a full rodeo <laughs> at Jacques Schmidt, who was president of, uh, of Espigan at the oh. time. And he rode out on the rodeo parade. I don't know if you've ever been to a rodeo, <laughs> but you had this parade at the beginning. I was on a horse. He was on a bull. A big old Texas no longhorn bull. Oh and, gosh. you know, to me, it was, it was kind of funny because, but he liked it uh, yeah. riding this bull we went you know nasa we had a big party at nasa so oh people my gosh. All, all around in, in the space the vehicles and such we uh had a barn dance where we had shooter girls going around to, <laughs> oh. giving everybody tequila, tequila. shots oh that's it, incredible. It, was, it was a wild time that is i feel like we need to do that again you know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> it would be fun to do again oh wow <laughs> Right. And one more from that, too. Don't forget <laughs> Fred Succi. Okay, well, yeah, let him tell yeah. it. <laughs> one humorous thing was that when we had this World Congress that, that, that we were responsible for in Houston. Um, I can't actually remember what the venue is, but in some way they convinced me to go on a horse and ride around some sort of an, an arena, which I, which I thought was scary since I had never been on a horse before. Wow. So Who convinced you? <laughs> I don't know. They just made me do it. You know? <laughs> as a um, as the president, they were like, you have to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, you have to show leadership and get on the horse. <laughs> so that was that was uh that was something that I always remember. How was it? It was it was, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> have you I ever guess. been have you been on the horse since then? Uh, I don't think so. 
<laughs> so honestly, out of all those stories, I feel like that's the story about a conference that I wish I could have been at. I know. Would you have said yes? To ride on a horse? Or a bull. Or a bull. Um, no. I feel like I would have. I mean, I might have gotten oh, hurt, man. but I would have been down to do it. But like, yeah. I mean, it's like the entire field of pediatric gastroenterology around the world is watching you break your leg. You know what I mean? I mean, but they didn't break their leg. They were fine. And you yeah. would be fine too. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for all the listeners, they know that we work with very closely with Carlo DiLorenzo. Yes. And one of the stories that I never got to participate in, but I always wanted to yeah. was the colons yes. versus the semicolons. semicolons. I agree. I feel like I get, I understand their excuses for why we can't do it anymore. Like we're too big. People I mean, the 5k is fun, but. Well, I don't <laughs> run. I might break my legs, you know? Um, but yes, so many of the presidents talked about this game that Dr. DiLorenzo uh, created. So let's hear him talk about it. Other past presidents have mentioned this uh, tradition that was once a big part of Naspigan that is no longer the infamous colons versus semicolons soccer game. Explain, what is this? Ah, such good memories, such good memories. Uh, Basically, the idea came around that uh, we wanted to have uh, an event that uh, kind of put the attendings against the fellows in some way. And we thought that the soccer was going to be the right venue. And it was. You know, we decided to have the colons, which were the attendings, playing against the semicolons. And we had it really well organized. We had a field picked up. We had uniforms. We had referees. Wow. We have, uh, you know, also we had to sign forms that we will not sue Nasperger if anybody got hurt. <laughs> uh, but those events became uh, a great tradition. We would have, before the game, people speak at the uh, annual luncheon, kind of roasting each other, making fun of the other team. And then uh, I have to say, every game was very competitive, very spirited. There was a great attendance. People were supporting either the columns or the semicolons. And at the end of the day, the columns always won. <laughs> uh, or at least they never lost. So uh, eventually we had to stop it because so many people wanted to play. Oh, the people began to complain about not getting enough playing time. And then oh, we felt gosh. that uh, it was probably time to move on. So the fellows never won. Like either it was a, either it was a tie. Yeah, or they got a, a couple oh, of ties, but uh, they wow. never won. The cup was like the Stanley Cup. We'll stay oh with the team gosh. that won. We will add just the year and the columns never lost. Now, somebody will say that the referees were also always attending. <laughs> and there were some rumors that maybe they were biased towards helping the older team, the columns, the attendings. But that's just a rumor. The truth is the columns always dominated and never lost. So... Okay, who were the referees? And give us some examples of the attendings who were like regulars. Okay, the referee, the one that I remember that had the best skill, and well, let's say was somewhat sympathetic to the Collins, was Toto Harlan Winter. <laughs> <laughs> so, former Nastigan president as well. Yes, but it was very fair. It was very, yeah, everybody right, knows right. Dr. Winter to be a very fair individual. Our team was extremely skilled. Our defense had some very tenacious, uh, tough people like Alessio Fasano, Billy, past president, Alex Flores, midfield, very talented, with Eric Hassel and Peter Mamula, and actually myself uh, as well. And uh, 
up front, we had Georgi Becerra that probably scored 70% of the Holland's uh, uh, goals and uh, Ben Gold, very fast uh, right wing. And uh, since this was a, a co-ed team, we actually had Karen Murray uh, playing up front as well uh, and contributing tremendously to our success. And then, you know, another funny story from that very first one was when Mitch Cohen talks about how they got kicked off and almost couldn't even finish Ooh. the game. So we got to <laughs> listen in. All right, Dr. Cohen. Two things happened at the meeting in San Antonio. Um, the first is we had the first colons versus semicolons. So as president-elect, you get to plan the meeting. And so that was the first time that, that we did that. The soccer game wasn't the treat, but we were in Texas. Soccer wasn't very big in Texas. Football was big in Texas. So uh, Margaret, bless her heart, arranged for us to have buses to go probably a half a mile. But in Texas, going a half a mile meant traveling five miles over different highways to get to this high school soccer field. And while we were there, a couple of high school students uh, were making some kind of amateur video and literally, they streaked the, the football field and uh, kind of were a distraction for us as we were trying to play the initial uh, soccer game. It only got worse when the Texas police showed up and they wanted to know what we were doing here on sacred ground, specifically on the football field. And what game were we playing on the football field? So they basically chased us away and we had to find the second field. It got a little better the following year when we weren't playing in Texas, but uh, that was probably a humorous moment. And uh, as I had mentioned, that we we started with a dance, and Margaret did a terrific job of arranging for a great band for the first dancing, and it was wall-to-wall packed. Unfortunately, my father had died less than a month earlier, and so part of our tradition is not to dance in the first month after your, your parent dies. But Dick Coletti was into it. And Dick, who was the current president, got up on the table and started dancing. I think that was why it's continued ever since, because everybody remembers Dick's moves. And uh, so Dick dancing on the table in San Antonio and us trying to play soccer on a high school football field are two moments that I remember as, quote, humorous anecdotes. So... You know, Naspigan is a time to me where you can really see a lot of friends. We get to see people that we've met in fellowship. I even have several friends from med school that I get to catch up with every year. And it's really awesome. But I love hearing (laughs) (laughs) Harlan Winter and Dick Coletti talk about how they used to be roommates. Yeah. Apparently, they were roommates for like every conference. Yeah. Let's listen in. (laughs) Being a member of NASMGAN, it was an important way for members to develop relationships with people outside their own centers. Uh, and, and I had already um, developed a friendship with Harlan Winter. Harlan, uh, actually, Harlan Winter, I have to, I, I just thank him time and again. He kind of took me under his wing when I had uh, was re- uh, relatively recently after my fellowship because uh, I was the only pediatric gastroenterologist in Vermont at the time. And I needed to get advice on patients from time to time. And I didn't have anybody to speak with. And I uh, contacted Harlan at one point. And so we developed a friendship and 
he said, are you going to the NASPGAN meeting? I said, what's NASPGAN? He said, well, you have to come. And you have to become a member and you have to come. This was back in the mid-80s. And, and let's room together. Uh, so I think he was trying to help me with my career, or he was also trying to cut his costs of paying for a room. <laughs> but anyway, since then, we have shared a hotel room at almost every conference where we were both attending. <laughs> I mean, that lasted 20 years, that, that proximity of friendship. And I think it was coincidental, but maybe not. But we both wore the same type of shoes. They were, they were these um, loafers. And um, I remember there was one conference. It was the last day of the conference for me. Harlan was staying another day. So I was getting, I was packing up and he was staying for a special uh, conference. And I remember I was packing up and I went to put my shoes on and I noticed these are Harlan's shoes, not mine. He had put my shoes on in the morning because he left to go to the conference early. So I had to go down um, to the conference, which was being held at the hotel. I had to page him or text him and he didn't answer me right away. And uh, finally, he came out to the hotel lobby and we changed shoes and he got his and I got mine. And I always think of that. I mean, it's a reflection of the closeness of our friendship. And um, but also, I've always felt I could never fill Harlan Winter's shoes. <laughs> Actually, his, his foot size is literally larger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And one more um, interesting story from Dr. Klish. Random. <laughs> I, uh, I wrestled with whether we should include this or not. Which we is, may this still is something that it. might happen when you wrestle. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> Good one there. But, oh man, an amazing story. I'm just going to let him tell it. Okay. Well, I could do most of our embarrassing stories. <laughs> The one that still sticks in my mind, uh, which was actually kind of funny, except to me at the time, was uh, <laughs> we used to go to to Colorado for a, uh, a a meeting that was primarily, at least as I recall, was had to do with gastroenterological histology. Well, at this meeting, it's, they were like all meetings. You spent a lot of time in a classroom and did a lot of uh, interesting or heard a lot of interesting lectures, but then when the lectures were done, you went out to have fun, mm -hmm. and which I think is an important part of every <laughs> meeting because there's got to be a social side to our field as well as a uh, scientific side. So this was in Colorado in the middle of the country somewhere, and uh, Ron Sokol, who had put on the, uh, the meeting, decided that we were going to go uh, rafting down the Colorado River. Okay. Went down to where the rafts were and the, you were assigned rafts and all this stuff. And we had to carry the rafts down to the river. So there were about four of us that would pick up a, a corner and lift it over our heads as we were carrying it. But Ron Sokol, being Ron Sokol, came, ran up to me and depants me. Oh, wow. 
Okay. <laughs> I, I couldn't do anything because yeah, I was did, holding up this the rat. <laughs> wow. So anyway, they got they got a good laugh out of everybody. <laughs> Initially, got didn't laugh, but they laughed afterwards <laughs> and chased. But I put the rat down. It chased chased Rod Sokol all over the place. <laughs> wow, that's incredible! It, it also tells you that we were all friends. Yeah. At that time. Too, oh know, yeah right it wasn't uh just a um <laughs> a professional exactly it yeah. was a true friendship that is incredible we'll have to make sure that he hears this uh <laughs> yeah. well he'll remember it <laughs> yeah i'm sure so yes now you can understand why i wasn't sure if i should include it or not but what an amazing it just talked i mean it goes to the friendships that are built in Naspigan. But right? also the family feel. Yeah. Right? Like, no matter how big <laughs> I mean, no, it's gotten. Like, no one in your family is dancing you, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, friends, friend, friendly feel. <laughs> I guess. God, all right, let's move on. <laughs> all right, you know, okay, moving on. Dr. Athos Busvaros. Um, one thing I really liked too, so he was explaining how. He didn't really have any funny stories, but he remembered a joke that Dr. Balistrieri told. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably from like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but he remembers it. And uh, let's listen in. I have to say, Bill Balistrieri always could give the best talk at the annual meeting every single year. And I just remember so many of his humorous anecdotes. That I'm just going to recite one. He was talking about the microbiome, okay? And he was talking about these special coffee beans that were made somewhere in Indonesia from civets. And they would actually basically swallow the coffee beans and then poop them out. And for some reason, the processing of these coffee beans by the civets could then gather them up and they would lead to a special kind of coffee. He called it crappuccino. <laughs> I just, I just always, I just always laugh at that joke. I will never, ever forget crappuccino. Uh, you know, Bill, I don't know how he did it. He had one of those every, every time that would just bring the house down at the end of his, at the end of his talk. So that coffee I have had. Really? Yeah. Um, in in Indonesia, I've but, uh, I actually somebody brought me back some, and oh, yeah. I haven't drunk it yet. Honestly, we we brought some, so we drank some there. We brought it back, and like, ah, there's never been like a morning or an any time of the day that we're like, <laughs> let's drink that poop coffee. <laughs> so it's sitting there. Uh, maybe we should do that next no, GI yeah. happy hour. Okay, sure. Or we just drink beer like normal people. <laughs> nope. All right, <laughs> moving on. When we asked. The president's like what the biggest change was since mm -hmm. their time in presidency. Hands down, everybody yeah. said growth. Oh, yeah. The growth of the society has been the biggest change for me. There was an explosion in pediatric gastroenterology. Obviously, the increased size and diversity. Last weekend, it's more than doubled in membership since that time. Growth has certainly been tremendous. Uh, there's been sustained growth, much more diversity and inclusion. Very rapid growth and a, a lot, tremendous amount of energy in Aspican amongst the membership. And then... Growth, 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 growth. And it was really cool. So Dr. Vanderhoof, uh, well, so whenever you go and you're walking on a college campus or you see the new interns when they come, yep. I already feel like they look very young. 
Yeah, because they are young. Because they are young. Yeah. Well, Dr. Vanderhoof really talks about (laughs) his experience of going to Naspigan now compared to where he was. Well, you know, it's huge and and it used to be little. I remember that that first meeting I went to, I think I knew everybody by their first name. And when I go to the meeting now, I I don't know anybody. Well, they're all so young, you know, I can't believe they're doctors. It's become very much more like going to the AGA. I mean, we have all these little subspecialty things that the quality of the science is astronomically better. The society's bigger. It's well run. Our council meetings used to last a couple of hours, you know, they, and the budget was fairly simple to deal with. But I think primarily it's grown. When I very first started going, the only thing we had were dinners. Uh, and we'd have a dinner at the AGA or the pediatric meetings or whatever and get together as a social group and then you know i started this meeting and watched it grow and now you know it's this huge complex organization it it has continuing education meetings and all these little uh specialty groups and it publishes guidelines and uh, it integrates well with the other societies around the world like espagan so uh yeah i mean it's grown to be a real thing whereas it was kind of a baby back when I was involved with it. So we talked a lot about how things change. And it was kind of cool to hear how programs that we sometimes maybe take for granted as mm. something that's always been there. Yeah, yeah. How they were created. Yeah. Including probably for many of us, like our first exposure to NASP began, which is Teaching in Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cohen tells us how that began. And how it got its name. Yeah. But then to address the the concern about making sure that pediatric gastroenterology got the best and the brightest, we thought, let them see who we are. And many of the people who went into pediatric GI did it because they were interested in the field and they loved the people who are in the field, their colleagues. So we created a program called Teaching in Tomorrow, which brought second year residents at the time to the, to the annual meeting and let them see what we did and let them get exposed to both the science and culture of Naspigan. I remember uh, flying out to the meeting where we were going to discuss this at the council, and I'm terrible at names. And in uh, my synagogue uh, in Cincinnati, we had a program called Tradition in Tomorrow. And I said, well, let's, let's try teaching in tomorrow. That will work for Naspigan. And that name has uh, un- unusually stuck. The program was initially funded by Procter & Gamble. It now has a different funding uh, stream, but I think its success has been maintained because it's, it's still alive 20 plus years later. So yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> it, we, it was a plagiarized title from some program his synagogue had. <laughs> But anyways, and I think another program that was kind of cool to hear the origin of is uh, Dr. Phil Sherman talking about the very first single topic symposium ever. So anyone listening, don't forget to sign up for this year's single topic symposium on technology. It's not too late. The single topic forum that was initiated as a standalone event before the annual meeting, the postgraduate course, and it went off uh, with a bang because... um, the research interest group on eosinophilic esophagitis, it was led by Glenn Vruda. He got an NIH grant, an R13 grant, to uh, fund a meeting. Uh, the meeting was held with adult and pediatric gastroenterologists. The proceedings published in Gastroenterology, a very high-impact journal. And it has really helped pediatric gastroenterologists lead in the development of knowledge in eosinophilic gastro. 
So that single topic forum has been a great advance. So as we're coming to an end, I think all of the presidents really had really good advice for us and for any future leader of NASP again. But in particular, I really appreciated Karen Murray's. She was one of our first interviews for Bell Sounds. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. We were in Chicago in that little tiny room. Yeah. Like literally, I just pushed the beds together. She had the chair. (laughs) You were sitting on the table. And I think I was sitting on the bed. And Jason was sitting like on the ledge of the window. And we were all huddled over one, <laughs> one microphone. microphone. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So here's her advice. I think that listening to the membership is one of the strongest messages. Remember, this is a society that is for and about our members. Have vision. How can we move our society forward in a way that is of greatest support and representation of those members? And really help drive forward, lead forward our discipline. And then lastly, I think that the the pandemic has actually really highlighted, as well as other initiatives, uh, good or bad, that have occurred in our country of late, is that NASPGAN is seen as a leader. And in pediatrics, in pediatric GI, we should be and can be leaders for medicine, for our communities, for our members, for our patients. And we need to have the confidence to lead that forward at a federal level, at a local level, and with our fellow societies. And I think we can and should, and it's great fun when we pull together and do that. We have such talent in this society. And I think Dr. Ron Sokol, he also helped with making this more of an international affair. Mm -hmm. And so I thought he had some really good advice as well. Well, I just want to, again, give pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists the courage and the self-confidence to represent children on the world stage who have health issues that we care for. Our role either is to prevent these issues, such as with childhood obesity or treat And I think we all live on the cusp of a world where we're going to be able to cure many diseases that uh, we would have never thought were curable a decade ago. And this has to do with some of the new gene and other therapies that are starting to become available. And we'll see over the next decade, I think, a transformation of how we can actually cure childhood diseases that uh, we were unable to before. Also, I think the advances in technology, endoscopy, and other technologies have transformed our field and uh, in the future will will yield many more advances that will allow us to care for children in in more non-invasive ways who need some type of intervention. So I think the future is bright. I think we should all be proud of our heritage, but we should not dwell on the past, but look to the future. All right. And then, you know, our last interview that we did was with our uh, very own Dr. John Barnard. Mm, I miss seeing uh, him around. And one of the things that I think was also a theme from all the past presidents was about how special of a community our society is. Yes. And so let's hear him talk about that. What advice would I have for for future Mm -hmm. presidents in Aspigan? And then I go back to that popular saying, culture eats the strategy for breakfast every time. And Naspigan has a culture of collegiality and camaraderie. There's a smallness of familiarity. 
to it. And even as we grow, being attentive to those characteristics, which makes NASP again feel tight and special and collegial and co- collaborative and friendly, supporting of junior people early in their careers, all those dimensions, I think is just so critically and important. And I would not um, turn our back on that aspect, culture and Naspigan, which I think as my role, a prior role is being a department chair to see uh, Naspigan uh, as a the pediatric subspecialty society, I think it's, I suppose it's arguable and other subspecialties may argue with me, but I think it's the strongest and I have a window into a lot of the uh, others and we ought not lose that. I think it's created a lot of important advantages for our discipline and, and even our patients, honestly. Mm-hmm. All right. We hope that you guys enjoy listening to these stories as much as we did. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think just as important as like listening to the latest updates on whatever disease is knowing about your history. And like, I mean, this profession, we dedicate so much time and energy into it's important to know kind of how we got where we are. And you got to remember, this is really just a small sample of some of the amazing stories that the president's had for us. So to listen to the full interviews, check out the timeline on the NASPGAN website. Um, A lot of people spent a lot of hours uh, putting that together including the heads of the History SIG, Dr. Harlan Winter, Dr. Joel Rosh, Dr. Mel Hyman, and also, of course, uh, Margaret Stallings. Well, and plus, we're about to go to Naspian, like in a couple yeah. weeks in mm-hmm. Orlando, right. and we're going to make our own memories. So when we're 89 years old, we can think back about the time <laughs> that we were in Naspian in Orlando. Yeesh. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> we are so looking forward to seeing everyone there. Yes. We also have some special things that we want to do there. So um, stay tuned to our Mm -hmm. socials, as the Gen Z call it. So we're probably going to have- I don't call it that, not Gen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, our socials, uh, pay attention, because we're probably going to do some kind of, we want to have a pool party. Um, Turns out um, it's a lot more expensive (laughs) (laughs) to buy, like to do an open bar at a hotel than we thought. But- um, we just uh, well, at least out. meet up. Yeah. yeah. So we'll uh, at choose an afternoon. We'll post like where we're going to be. Just yeah. come have a drink with us. I actually did just place an order for a, a billion more stickers. Yes. They're very good. Not a billion, but like a couple hundred. So the first like 200 people get tickets <laughs> or no, no, get Not stickers, tickets. get stickers, free stickers. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. We had thought about having other merch there, but you know, work, we're busy, but stickers, stickers. I hope to see all you there. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.